Welcome to Fundamentals of Team Building. These are proven strategies for superior work teams. My name is Dr. Don Ford. I'm president of Training Education Management in Torrance, California in the USA. And I'm very happy to be sharing this webinar and podcast with you today. And I'm going to share some of the insights that I have gained over many years of building effective work teams across uh, all kinds of industries and really uh, across the world, including working in Asia, in Latin America, and in the Middle East. And uh, I find no matter where you go in the world, uh, people today need to work effectively together and form a strong high-performance teams that allow them to uh, get work done in the modern era. So uh, let's now turn to the objectives of the program. Uh, first, I'm going to uh, help you identify some basic principles of high-performance teams and the advantages that those teams have over traditional work groups. Second, I'm going to help you identify the four types of teams and the four stages of team development to better understand how teams are formed and, and develop over time. Third, I'm going to help you develop a team charter that will guide decision making and the day-to-day -day actions, including uh, clarifying roles and responsibilities of team members and effectively establishing patterns for communication. And then finally, I'm going to help you set goals and develop action plans that will help you achieve the results that your team is after. To start, let's talk about what is a high-performance team? What makes teams high-performing versus low? And I think uh, the key elements include the following. First, high-performance teams have a shared mission. Everyone buys into the overall mission and goals of the team. Low-performance teams often have divided opinions about the mission and include people who are not committed to achieving the mission. It may even include people who want to sabotage the mission. That uh, obviously is not going to be effective. Uh, secondly, high-performance teams tend to have a considerable autonomy and authority to make decisions and to operate their team the way they want. Low-performance teams typically sit back and wait for someone else to tell them what to do. Uh, third, a high-performance team uh, has a lot of shared leadership and interdependence. The team is, uh, uh, closely coordinates its activities and its work to ensure that things get done. A low-performance team tends to have a, a single uh, leader above the team that uh, is responsible for all leadership decisions, which the team may or may not agree with or buy into. Uh, fourth, a high-performance team generally has broadly defined jobs uh, where job descriptions are not limited to a couple of simple tasks, but rather are, are fairly broad and allow people to uh, cross-train and to help each other out. Um, Low-performance teams tend to have very narrowly defined jobs and tasks that uh, limit what people can do. 
Next, we see high performance teams uh, allow everyone some meaningful participation in the decision making, whereas low performance teams tend to rely on a single uh, leader to make all decisions, again, which the team members may or may not buy into. Uh, next, a high performance team sets clear performance expectations, and those expectations are high. Uh, everyone on the team is in, encouraged to give their very best uh, to the team and to help the team succeed. Uh, low performance teams are characterized by uh, people uh, slacking off, by people retiring on the job, uh, people doing the bare minimum, just soldiering on, but uh, but not really committed to, to, to the team. And finally, high performance teams, and perhaps most importantly, they tend to produce superior results uh, from their work because the team is uh, committed to a common mission, because everyone is working together to achieve that mission. Uh, therefore, uh, high performance teams almost always produce better measurable results than low performance teams who often, unfortunately, actually produce little or no result as uh, in their work um, because of the dysfunctionality within the team. So let's take a closer look at uh, what how high performance teams compare to traditional work groups. The traditional work group, as we know, is one in which uh, the work is organized around a function and the employees are typically assigned very specialized tasks, which they do typically in isolation um, from others. Uh, there's typically very close supervision from the uh, leader of the work group. The manager or supervisor typically oversees people's work closely. Uh, it's very rule governed. There's a, a very long list of rules and regulations that people have to follow. And people are typically viewed as resources of management to be used however they see fit with little or no input from the employees themselves. Now, these traditional work groups have succeeded over many centuries uh, in getting work done. And indeed, um, there may be situations where the traditional work group makes more sense especially when you have employees who are not very skilled and knowledgeable in their job and require a lot of close supervision, or you have a, a situation where uh, close command and control is very important because of the nature of the work. However, uh, those situations increasingly are less uh, obvious and less uh, occur less often than we saw in the past. And so hence we've seen the emergence of high performance teams. These are teams that are allowed to become self-governing and to uh, provide uh, their own uh, internal uh, controls and, and management and decision making. And the uh, leader of those teams and the supervisor uh, often plays a more facilitative role where they are providing advice, they're providing resources and support, but they're not di uh, directly commanding and controlling the team. Uh, this allows the team then to uh, get more involved, to share leadership among members of the team, 
uh, to have greater buy-in to what the team is doing because everybody's involved in, in running it. Uh, often high performance teams are organized around core work processes rather than a single function and that allows them to uh, to work across uh, departments and across boundaries uh, to get work done. They're often very principle governed. They have a set of, of uh, operating principles that they work from rather than a long list of rules and regulations and they view the members of the team as partners and as associates that are all committed to getting uh, the work done. So increasingly we're seeing the high performance team model uh, as a more dominant model for, the, uh, for, uh, for uh, getting work done in the 21st century. So now let's talk about uh, what it takes for a team to become high performing. Uh, there are really three key elements of a high performance team that, uh, that have to be decided and, and established before that team can really function to its full potential. Uh, the first is uh, why does the team exist? And that goes to creating a charter uh, for the team to clearly establish a mission and a set of goals that will govern the, the team's work. Now, whether the team is a short time project team set up just for a few months to get a particular task done or whether the team is going to continue to work in an ongoing basis, uh, the uh, charter is the first thing that needs to be done. Most human beings before they commit to any enterprise wanna know why that enterprise exists and what it's why why it's uh, it's uh, come into existence and and what it's supposed to do, and of course that gets us to the second key question: What is the team charged with doing? And um, so the what is of course the content of the project, whatever it might be, or the outcomes and results that the team is in is uh, has been formed in order to create and to produce. So uh, the team also needs to spend some time clearly defining what it's going to be doing and what results it'll be accountable for. And then the third key question is uh, how will the work get done? And that has to do with how the members of the team are going to relate to each other and how they're going to make decisions and how they're going to work together in order to accomplish the goals of the project. So once we establish why the team exists, what it's supposed to be doing and how it's going to get the work done, then we have the potential for establishing a high performance team. So now let's talk about different types of teams. Uh, so e all teams are not the same, even high performing teams. Obviously it would depend on the project the team is assigned to, uh, the, the industry that it, it exists in, even the people who make up the membership of the team. So not all teams are the same. Uh, one way to think about teams is to use a sports analogy. So let me share with you four different kinds of sports teams and let's think about the, uh, how those teams are structured and what they do. So first of all, let's consider the issue of spe task specialization. So uh, how specialized are the members of the team? 
do each team does each team member do something different do they bring a different set of expertise to the team or do they all do more or less the same task and the same job so uh, the sports analogy would be a bowling team versus a swim team right a bowling team is uh, say three or four people typically who all do pretty much the same thing they this specialization is very low each member of the team takes a bowling ball and and hurls it down an alley and tries to knock down ten pins and that that's what each of them do uh, they might have slightly different styles but each of them do this basically the same thing so do you have a team where all the members uh, have roughly the same job and perform the same tasks. Uh, then you have a bowling team, little or no specialization. Uh, alternatively, you might have a swim team. In a swim team, each member of the team swims a different stroke, uh, whether it's the breaststroke or the backstroke or the butterfly or the, uh, the traditional uh, crawling stroke. Uh, and so each member of the team works individually, uh, but does their own specialized uh, stroke, therefore very, very highly specialized. But notice there's little or no coordination other than when swimmers are in a relay race, then there's a bit of coordination. But generally speaking, each swimmer swims on, by themselves, but they do something completely different. So do you have a team like that where every each person has a specialization, but they tend to work more or less alone, little or no coordination? On the other side of the spectrum, let's consider another characteristic of teams, which is how much coordination the team requires in order to, to do its work. So in the case of high coordination, where the team members must work closely together and coordinate their efforts, we have, again, two different sports examples. The first example would be a volleyball team. A volleyball team uh, typically consists of six uh, people, and each of them uh, has a role to play. But generally speaking, in volleyball, there are only two roles, really. There's the setter role, and there's the spiker role. The setter is the shorter person who lofts the ball high in the air, and the striker position is the taller person who tries to spike it over the net and score a point. So there are those two roles, but that's just about it. Everybody else, everybody on the team has to serve, and really there are only those two roles. So we have fairly uh, low task specialization, but the key to volleyball, if you've ever watched a match, is the team coordination, the fact that those six players have to work uh, closely together and anticipate each other's moves in order to be successful. So do you have a team like that where there's a high degree of coordination among the team members but fairly low specialization, maybe only you know one or two different roles? And then finally, the most complex teams are those that are high in coordination and also high in task specialization. So think about from the sports world, think about a basketball team. A basketball team has five members and each of those members is a specialized role. Plus each member has to both play offense and defense. They can't, uh, you can't substitute out very easily. 
And of course, the coordination among those five members is also incredibly high because they pass the ball uh, among themselves to find an open player. Uh, the coordination is extremely high and the task specialization is also extremely high. So arguably a basketball team in the world of sports is probably the most difficult team to manage uh, correctly because they require both specialization and coordination. Now, which of those teams does do you belong to? If you think about your own work experience, are you uh, largely a uh, working alone with little coordination like a bowling team? Or are you more uh, highly coordinated and highly specialized like a basketball team? In my experience in the corporate and uh, organizations that I've worked with, uh, I think team coordination is generally pretty high. Team members are expected to coordinate their activities. So I would say most uh, corporate teams are either volleyball or basketball teams or some version of, uh, of large uh, group teams that need to coordinate uh, their efforts. So that raises the stakes. Obviously, it makes it a little more difficult. Uh, but that's not to say that they can't be more effective. Indeed, it becomes even more important to have high-performing teams when you're, uh, when you're both highly specialized and highly coordinated. Otherwise, the results are likely to be less than ideal. Okay, next, I want to talk about the, the stages of team development. Uh, teams tend to go through a developmental process uh, from the moment they form until they've completed their work. And uh, it's important to understand these uh, stages of development because nearly all teams go through them. And uh, by understanding this process, you can better manage the expectations and the, and the work of the team. Um, a professor from Princeton University named Bruce Tuckman uh, developed a model of four stages of team development back uh, years ago. And he starts, of course, with the first stage, which is forming. Uh, during the forming phase, this is when teams are getting acquainted for the first time, uh, their first meeting together. Their group identity is rather low. Uh, they, there might even be some stereotyping of other members of the team uh, who are likely to see some cliques form among team members. Uh, some people will be very excited about being part of this new team. Others might be a little anxious and suspicious about uh, the team and whether it can accomplish the work. Um, there will be some abstract discussions among the team members about uh, what they're supposed to be doing and uh, some concepts around how they'll work. Uh, but those discussions often are, are abstract and, and don't result in specific uh, agreements. Uh, there may also be some complaints from the team. And generally, the team members are sort of sizing each other up and deciding, you know, who's going to do, be doing what and what is my role and, you know, how am I going to work with others. So this forming phase is natural. You know, whenever you're first uh, invited to a new group of people, you walk into a meeting, maybe you don't know everybody in the room. Of course, there's going to be a certain period of getting acquainted and learning about who's there and what are their capabilities. So forming is pretty natural. 
Next, uh, Tuckman talked about a storming phase. Shortly after we formed, uh, people may indeed start to question whether uh, the team is really capable of achieving its goals. Uh, there may be some internal competition for an influence. Uh, we may see some conflict uh, start to emerge as different uh, approaches and different uh, ideas about how to proceed start to, uh, to come out. There may be some hidden agendas. Maybe some people start to resist the task or lose faith that the, the team can actually accomplish its mission. Um, the fluctuations in attitude might cause stress and conflict within the team. Um, there, some members of the team may set out unrealistic goals that can't be achieved. Others might uh, try to minimize the work of the team. Uh, and generally, there's a perceived lack of progress. So the team can get bogged down in its internal struggles and conflicts. And uh, although this phase is very typical, uh, most teams encounter some storming, some stress early in their in their uh, forming. Uh, if this continues, then this could turn into a very bad situation of a dysfunctional team. Some teams get stuck in the storming phase. That is, they never really go beyond the conflict and the doubts and the, and the bickering among them and therefore become, uh, by, by definition, a low-performing team. That, in fact, some teams get so bad that people don't even show up anymore. Uh, they stop coming to meetings. They stop participating because they view the team as being so dysfunctional, it's incapable of achieving its, its goals and getting any work done. Uh, so that's obviously a bad situation. So the goal here then is to work through all of those issues that occur in storming and eventually get to the next phase, which is the norming phase. And that's when the team begins to actually accomplish its work, uh, where group identity starts to form, uh, people begin to uh, share ideas in a more open-minded way, uh, they start making some shared decisions as a group about how to move forward, um, there's an acceptance on the part of the team of the other members, they start to get to know and accept each other, there's more of a friendly a positive attitude among the team. Uh, they have established some basic ground rules that allow uh, people to function successfully and uh, to begin to get work done. And so norming is where most teams end up and, and that's where a lot of good work happens, right? As the team is now finding, finally found a way to, to proceed and get its work done. Well, finally, Tuckman mentioned that some teams go beyond just norming, just getting the work done and become high performing. And so when they, when they enter the performing stage, then we start seeing higher levels of performance, high levels of creativity, high morale, uh, where uh, any uh, decision is made by consensus, the entire team buys into it, where they use mul multiple problem-solving methods to deal with problems that occur. 
they have a constructive way to handle any conflict that arises within the team. Uh, there are very positive group dynamics. Uh, people are responsible for themselves and for the team. There's a lot of cohesion and synergy. And at this point, the team then begins to excel and to go beyond just getting the job done to actually doing exemplary work. Uh, these are the teams that people probably look back on in their careers with uh, the most admiration and pride. Uh, you may think to yourself a time when you were part of a team that was highly functioning, that was getting a lot of work done, and you enjoyed the people you worked with, those are probably some of the most satisfying moments of anybody's work career. We all strive to be part of a team that is making a difference and is also an enjoyable uh, uh, group to be around. So that's really, I think, the way to think about high-performing team, getting a lot of work done and enjoying the work and enjoying each other's company at the same time. So that's where we'd like to go, right, with all of our teams. So again, how do we get there? Uh, one way that I have found that helps teams is to, at the very beginning, during the forming stage, to clearly create a team charter, uh, a document that clearly describes what the team is going to do and how it's going to get the work done. Um, including clear roles and responsibilities for all the team members. If we start with a kickoff that establishes a clear charter, then everybody then has a clear idea what's the team going to be doing and how it is going to get the work done. And that makes it so much easier for, um, for teams then to be able to move through the storming and norming phases and get to high performing a lot faster and with a lot more confidence and certainty. So what does the team charter do? It answers five key questions that any team needs to uh, establish in order to be high performing. So first question, who are you accountable to? In other words, for whom are you working? Uh, and we'll look at a couple of different possibilities. There, there are customers clearly that a team serves, internal or external. And then there are also key stakeholders, including the management that set up the team or authorized it to be created in the first place. So that's the first thing, uh, to be clear about who we're accountable to. The second key question, what are we expected to accomplish as a team? So what is our specific mission and, uh, and um, set of goals? What is it that we uh, exist to do? Uh, thirdly, why do we exist? Why should this team be handling a particular set of tasks instead of some other team or some other group of people? So what uniquely qualifies our team to, uh, to actually accomplish those goals? And then the fourth question, what kind of team do we want to be? So again, thinking about are we like a bowling team or are we more like a basketball team? So how, co how closely coordinated do we need to be? How specialized in the work do we need to be? And indeed, do we have the right people on the team? If you got the wrong people, then your team can't possibly be successful, right? And then fifth, the last question, how will we work together? 
And that includes how are we going to communicate with each other? How will we make decisions? How will we decide whether we've been successful or not? Uh, that's a key question that often doesn't get answered. And as a result, many teams struggle with figuring out how they're going to work together. They may be clear about what they're supposed to accomplish, but they don't know how to get there. And as a result, they often don't succeed. So uh, let's talk about uh, accountability for a moment. And let's start first with uh, uh, the first le level of accountability would be to customers, whether they're internal or external customers, right? Every team should be able to establish who its customers are. And uh, by that, we mean anyone who directly receives or uses the product or service that the team provides. Now, that could be an internal customer such as a person, group, or department within the company who receives the product or service. So maybe you are servicing you know, a department or a group function within your organization. So that's internal customer. Maybe your project will benefit the accounting department, or uh, maybe it will benefit uh, a, a different department. And then finally, you have also external customers, uh, such as a person or business outside the company who may be purchasing the product or service you provide. Uh, and in that case, obviously, we need to understand who they are and what their needs are. And then finally, there's a concept of a key customer, an internal or external customer whose relationship, influence, or business is critical to your success. And therefore, that key customer is the person that you definitely must uh, satisfy above all else, because otherwise the project and the team will fail. The second group of key uh, people where the teams are accountable to are their stakeholders. Now, stakeholders are a little bit harder to define, but think of a stakeholder as any person, group, department, or business entity that uh, has a significant stake or interest in your success. Now, they may be either inside your company and organization, or they may be outside. Uh, a key stakeholder could be the manager or the leader who set up the team in the first place, for example or it could be uh, some external customer who's uh, waiting for uh, the results of the team. Uh, and again, key stakeholders are those that have a critical stake or interest in your success. And these people are obviously extremely important to identify and to figure out how to ensure that you meet their, uh, their expectations. Also, think about uh, the person who's paying for this team to exist. That person we can call a sponsor. They're a key stakeholder who champions a project and who contributes financially to ensure it's successful. So if you're an internal team, it's whoever the leader is in your, in your organization that set up the team, authorized the team, and is willing to spend money on it. Uh, if you're external, it's whoever is paying you to uh, serve as a member of a team, right? So again, sponsors are extremely important. They're paying for this effort, and so therefore their expectations are extremely important. So uh, to start with, we need to clearly define who are the customers and stakeholders, and then secondly, what is it that they're expecting us to accomplish? 
And once we've done that, then we can start to turn to the, uh, to the end result, which is what are the expected results that this team is going to create. So what must our team do to be considered successful by not only ourselves, but also by the key customers and key stakeholders? And oftentimes those results are first uh, established as outcomes and goals of the project. So the project during the charter phase is going to establish uh, several uh, key goals or outcomes that it is now uh, committed to creating and to producing. And then once it does that, then it has to also create some metrics uh, and some ways of measuring success so that it knows whether it's achieving its goals or not. Uh, sometimes the goals are easy to set, but the measures, the metrics may be difficult uh, to come up with. It's important that the team define both. What is it that we're going to accomplish and how will we know when we've gotten there? So let me just summarize for you. Uh, what we've talked about today is how high performance teams are more productive teams uh, because they work better together. Uh, they have a clearer mission and they have a clearer understanding of how to get uh, the job done. Uh, secondly, uh, all teams go through different stages of development, typically four key stages. They form, then they storm a little, then they norm, and finally they become high performing if they work their way through the stages. Uh, we also talked about how teams are not all alike. Some teams are highly coordinated with high specialization of tasks and others are less so. So you need to also define the type of team you plan to be. Uh, we, we also talked about the requirement to create a charter that defines the purpose and the operating norms and the results that the team is uh, committed to, to producing. And finally, uh, we've uh, mentioned that team leaders uh, play a more facilitating role in the work of the team than in traditional work groups where it's more command and control. So with that, I am now going to conclude my remarks on high performance teams. I invite you to think about your own experience with teams. Uh, what kind of teams have you for, uh, formed and been part of in the past? How many of them were high performing? And what specific uh, things can you do as a team member and team leader to help ensure that your team indeed reaches that high performing stage where the work gets done and people are enjoying it as they do it. So with that, I wish you all the best in your team building uh, efforts in the future. And I thank you very much for being part of this uh, podcast today and uh, listening. If you have further information or questions, you may reach me at donaldjford at verizon.net or visit my website, traineducationmanagement.com. And once again, thank you for listening.